we wave now goodbye to the church at Thessalonica. Imagine what thoughts, as Paul closes this out, filled his mind, his heart. He was writing it from Corinth. Perhaps he's been at it for an hour, a few hours, or even a couple days as he's dictating this letter, writing it to the church. A church that he'd only been with for three weeks. He hasn't seen them for at least nine months to a year. Yet, even though he was with them for three weeks, there was a bond that developed, a strong bond of love. If you have ever had the experience of traveling overseas and visiting Christians in other countries, you know exactly what this is like. Even if you're only there for just a couple of weeks, there is that bond that develops. When I was in India this last time, even after being there for just a week and a half, there were some people that we felt like we knew them our whole lives. A one in particular that we met who was just serving us breakfast every morning when we were leaving, he had tears in his eyes. He's saying, I'm going to miss you so much. There's that instant bond that develops between Christians as far as friendship is continued or is concerned. Now, Paul the Apostle, when he wrote to this church, he wrote about several issues, his love for them, his concern for them. He saw problems among them. But even though there were problems, he, with a shepherd's heart, a huge heart of love, closes this letter out so gracefully. You know, it's been said that where love is thick, faults run thin. And where love is thin, faults are thick. Now ask yourself where you fit in. How are you among other people? Do you see their faults? Are you a fault finder? Or are you a faithful friend approaching them with thick love and seeing their faults as much thinner than that? Faithful friends are, I think, one of the most precious things you can ever have in life. People who know you for who you are and love you and accept you for who you are and will stand by in any situation, whatever you're going through. A faithful friend. C.S. Lewis said, true friendship is not gazing into each other's eyes, but facing in the same direction toward a common goal and toward a common God. And here's Paul, a faithful shepherd. Here's the church at Thessalonica, a faithful group of people. And they now turn their hearts in closing to a faithful God. Let's read it together. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Even more than just friendship, I think Christian friends are the greatest because you can bear one another's burdens, and you know we have enough of them. But to bear them up with one another, who will always be with you, always stand by you, is such a precious thing. And the great thing about having a Christian friend is that even when you say goodbye, when you say farewell, it's only very temporary. It's not long term. Even if they're going to die, you can say, see you later because you know you'll be with them forever in heaven. In Israel, when you greet somebody, you say shalom. 
And when you say goodbye, you say shalom. It either means hello or it means goodbye. There's another term that the Hebrews use. It's the term lehitraot, which means I'll see you later. And the Hebrews have a saying that true friends never say shalom. They always say lehitraot. It's never goodbye permanently. It's always I will see you later. Of course, with Christians, it could never be more true. Even if we don't see each other the rest of this life, we'll see each other and be with each other in heaven. So I've entitled the last section of 1 Thessalonians, A Faithful Farewell. And uh, as you see, after beginning in verse 16, there's these one-liners. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, on and on. There's all these one-liners, which gives us the will of God for our lives internally as well as corporately. He concludes it with a faithful farewell to his friends. And I've divided it up this way. In verses 23 and 24, we have a prayer to a faithful father. Paul prays for them. In verses 25 through 27, petitions to faithful friends. And finally, the last verse is a proclamation of a faithful future. I've got to say that nothing, I think, can take the place of faithfulness. There is one virtue that I think is even superseding talent, ability, or giftedness, and that is faithfulness. When Jesus rewards you, he's not going to say, well done, good and brilliant servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. He wants us to be faithful. If you go to um, Yellowstone National Park, there's geysers throughout the park, some that are spectacular, some that are huge. But there is one that gets more attention than any other geyser, and that's Old Faithful, not because it's big. There's some that are a lot bigger, but because it's always on time. It's regular. You can always count on it. They say, if you just stay here a few more minutes, here it'll come, and there it is. It's always faithful. Though others are bigger, the thing is always faithful. So in verse 23, we have prayers to a faithful father. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Now, that's quite a prayer to end with. Paul prays for sanctification. May God sanctify you. What does that mean? Sanctification is a $100 word for holy or that you will grow continually. Paul's saying, I am praying that as you have been growing, you continue to mature and don't stagnate or plateau, but that you'll keep growing in the Lord, that God would sanctify you completely. Sanctification or growth, spiritual growth, is a process. It begins when you come to Christ, it continues through your life, and it never ends till the day you die. You will be growing more and more, hopefully, in the image of Jesus Christ. It's not instantaneous, it's not a light switch, it's a steady process. When you come to Jesus Christ, the condition that you're in is much like a young couple when they buy their first house. Typically, a young couple, they buy their first house, they scrape up enough money for a down payment, and they will often buy a fixer-upper. It's not brand new. It's not the best house on the block. It needs paint, needs new carpet, needs a lot of stuff. But hey, let's take it. We'll work on it. We'll fix it up. And it'll be worth more when we're done with it than when we bought it. When you came to Christ, you were a true fixer-upper. 
And it wasn't a bargain. God just saw the potential. In fact, you could say the house was condemned. The city shut it down. It was ready to be leveled. And God says, let me have it. Let me change. Let me put new carpet and new paint. I'll take it from that condition and I will sanctify completely that house. We've often said that God loves you just the way you are, but that God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So that when He purchases you, there's the fixer-upper, but it needs work. And I think there's no one in this room who wouldn't say, I agree. I need a lot of work. I need a lot of help. And by God's grace, that process of sanctification continues. Jesus said to His disciples, You did not choose Me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you would bring forth much fruit. He didn't say, I appointed you so that you could just stay in the condition that I got you. But no, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to continue. Notice it says, sanctify you completely. In other words, the work of God should extend to absolutely every area of your life. There should be no area left untouched. He takes the house and he starts vacuuming the rooms, cleaning up the windows, moving the furniture around. Is there a room in your life that God is trying to get to? That you say, got the keys. I'm not going to give them to you. Hey, don't mess with that room, God. You can have the rest, but I want this little area back. Do you have the same situation as the man who wrote the pamphlet where he accepted Christ into the house of his heart and his experience was this? He said, one day I found Jesus waiting for me at the front door. There was an arresting look in his eye. He said to me as I entered, there's a peculiar odor in the house. There's something dead around here. It's upstairs, I think, in the hall closet. As soon as he said those words, I knew what he was talking about. Yeah, there was a small hall closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square, and in that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I didn't want anybody to know about, and I certainly didn't want Christ to see. I knew that they were dead and rotting things, yet I loved them. And I wanted them for myself, and I was afraid to admit that they were there. I went up the stairs with Jesus, and as we mounted, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door, and he said, It's in there. Some dead thing. I was angry. I'd given him access to the library, the dining room, the drawing room, the workshop, the rumpus room, and now he's asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said inwardly, This is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with that odor, you're mistaken. I'll take out my bed and I'll be out on the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that, said Jesus. And I saw him start down the stairs. When you have come to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. I had to surrender. I gave him the key. Maybe you are experiencing the hand of the Lord putting his finger on some little area of your life messing with you. And you're thinking, hey, don't mess, all right? Sure, I'll come to church. I'll carry a Bible. But don't expect me to completely give every aspect of my life over to you. After all, this is America. I can do what I want. Oh, but Jesus purchased you, and He wants to sanctify you, change you, grow you up completely, as it says. 
Notice also the way this is put. Same verse. Now may the God of peace himself, autos in the Greek. In other words, the agent doing the work is the Lord. May he himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think for a moment of Paul the Apostle's experience. He had only been with them three weeks, hardly long enough to really make a dynamic impact into the life of a community, you'd think. Three weeks, what's that? He had to leave quickly under persecution. He left in the middle of the night, and for months he was wondering, how are these people doing? I wonder if they're growing. Have they fallen away? Has the persecution been too much? He sent Timothy to see how they were doing while Paul was in Athens. By the time Timothy got back, Paul moved to Corinth. Timothy said, Paul, good news. You've only been there three weeks, but this church is on fire. They've grown. They labor with love. They have the patience of hope. They're evangelizing Achaia, Macedonia. Everyone's hearing the gospel through them. Good news, Paul. And so now Paul is recognizing that he must turn them over to God. He has impacted them. He has done what he could. It's time to now just say, hey, you belong to the Lord. I just wish the best for you. May God himself sanctify you completely. May God do the work. Here's my point. We can only do so much in terms of discipling, teaching, and warning Christians. You might be discipling a young believer in the faith. And you're thinking, man, there's that one stubborn area, and I just want to get them to surrender to the Lord. How can I do it? You can't. You are an agent, but you have your limitations. And there comes a point where you entrust them to the Lord. This week I received an angry letter about two pastors on my staff. Somebody had evidently come in for marriage counseling, actually premarital counseling. They wanted to get married. They were engaged. And they wanted us to do it. And so we meet with all the people first. We go through their life and we ask them about the relationship to God with each other. And we never feel obligated to marry everybody who says, I want to get married. We want to make sure before God, with all the integrity we can, that this is the Lord's will. We're not there to judge, but to facilitate and to help. And so we asked her, are you a Christian? Are you born again? She said, no. We said, well, it's important that you are to have a Christian relationship. And we were warning this uh, guy who was dating her, the importance of this and so forth. And so uh, the one pastor said, I, I think you need to wait a while. And we want to work with you. We want you to become strong and stable in the faith. After meeting with him a couple times, I could see this was important. He was angry. Talked to another pastor on staff. The other pastor told him exactly the same thing in so many words. He met again with the other pastor, and they, he said, this is where we stand. This is how we'll approach it. And the guy got angry, ripped up the papers that he had filled out, and cussed out the pastor and ran out the door. Now, this pastor said, my inclination is to run after the guy and say, wait, wait. Don't just run out. Hey, let's work this thing through. But there comes a point where you just have to say, we've done all that we could. Your choice is now your choice. I commit you to God. May God himself do the work. I've done all that I could, but now I just turn you over to the Lord. 
Paul had that experience with the church at Ephesus. He was there two years. He was ready to leave. All of the elders assemble on the shores of Ephesus. And they're all weeping. It's a touching, emotional scene. As Paul says, I'll probably never see your face as long as I live. I'm leaving. And so he said to them as he was leaving, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God wants to do the work, and I'm praying that he will. But you know what? You belong to the Lord. The Lord is your shepherd. So the Lord wants to do a total job in your life, sanctify you completely. However, though he himself will work to do that, you must cooperate with him. You can grow or you can close the door and say, No, I won't obey in that area. I'll keep the key to that room. I won't let you vacuum it out and clean it out. You will be my Lord as long as it's convenient for me. Here, Lord, sit up on this shelf here, and when you're convenient, I'll take you out. Like when I have a crisis, I'll be sure to come and cry and pray to you. But don't you get nosy with my life. We commit to the Lord, and we can grow as much as we want. I'll show you how that works. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Just turn right, keep going down the street, past Hebrew Street, James Street, 1 Peter Street. You end up on 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now notice how powerful God is in His provisions for our growth. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see the picture here? God's powerful. He's given you His Word. He's given you His promises and His power so that you can grow and thrive in a godly life. That's God's part, but let's continue. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, a literal translation, putting every bit of effort you can into it. That's the idea behind giving all diligence. Add to your faith, literally lavishly supply to your faith, virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's two parts. God's given you the power and the promises. Now you add to your faith. You cooperate with His work in your life. Or you will stagnate. You can grow as much as you want. You can cooperate as much as you want. That's Paul's prayer for them sanctification. Now, let's turn back to our text. In the same verse, he prays for preservation. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will also do it. Actually, this is part of the same prayer. He says, I pray that God would grow you up, clean out the house, refurbish you totally preserve you, carrying that work through all the way to the very end. And notice how he phrases it. 
He begins from the inside and works to the outside. Your spirit, the innermost being, your soul, the seat of your mind, emotions, will, decisions, and then your body. You see, when God works in us, He works from the inside out, not the outside in. God begins, takes you the way you are and begins with your attitude, your heart, and then through your mind, and then through your body. This is the mistake in the past of religions. Religion comes along and says, clean up your act, do righteous deeds, suffer, work hard, and then God will accept you. They're working from the outside in. God never does that. He takes you and does a work from the inside out. Religion historically has said, if you keep the law, if you strictly, stringently do this and do that, if you crawl on your knees and get them bloody, you'll be holy. No, you won't. You'll be beat up. In the fourth century, a guy by the name of Benedict, who became Saint Benedict to some, believed the only way God would accept him is that he had to live three years in a cave and wear clothing of rough animal hair so that his skin would suffer. Oh boy. Can you see the folly of that? In the second century, there was somebody who wrote a little treatise entitled, What I Must Forsake. And just to show you how goofy you can get with this, this is what he must forsake. He said, colored clothes, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat, don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against Him who created us to attempt to improve on His work. It was all outward. God works from the spirit and the soul and then the body. And notice in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful and He also will do it. God's reliable. You can trust Him. That's one of the themes of Scripture. He never breaks a promise. And here's Paul's idea. If God called you, He'll carry you to the finish line. He began a good work. He'll complete it and carry it through to the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jude said in verse 24 of his little book. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So that's Paul's prayer as he concludes this letter. Prayer to a faithful God. Look at the next verse. We get now petitions to faithful friends. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Let's look one at a time at these petitions. First of all, brethren, pray for us. Now that's a mark of humility. The apostle doesn't say, I, the great apostle, will pray for you. Lord knows you need it. But as a humble servant, he says, I also need prayer. Pray for me, Silas, Timothy. We need your prayers. Hey, you know what? Pastors need prayers too. And I'm convinced that one of the secrets of the effectiveness of Paul's ministry is that he had so many churches praying for him. I still keep on file something that was handed to me that is so precious, I bring it out every now and then and look at it with great joy. It was a piece of paper given to me by some of you some years back. I think it was for Christmas or birthday or something, but it was every week of the year, all 52, written down, 1 through 52, 
The date was given and the names of the people who would be praying for me specifically that week. And I looked at that paper and I thought, how can I lose? I get letters from around the country where our radio broadcast is saying, Skip, we are praying for you. And I'm going, yes, go for it. Keep at it. I covet those prayers. Here's the interesting thing, and I only discovered it this week. Oftentimes in the Scripture, Paul asks for prayers for himself. But interestingly enough, he says, Pray for me that I might find and do the will of God and not swerve from it. It's always related to the work and the ministry that God called him to. Though Paul had personal needs, he never said, no, I'm in a financial crisis. Please send your seed faith gift. It was always in regard to the work of the Lord. Listen to a couple of them. Romans 15, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints, and that I can come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you. That's Romans chapter 15. Then he wrote to the Ephesians, Pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Then he wrote to the Thessalonians in the second book, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified just as it is with you. You see... The kingdom of God is much like a major battle. You've got those on the infantry, right on the front line. They do a lot of the front line work. They see a lot of the victories. They take a lot of the hits. But we also need those secret service agents who by prayer move the gospel across enemy lines. And did you know that though you cannot travel, maybe you don't have the ability right now or the calling or the free time to travel as a missionary or do certain amounts of work even within the church. By prayer, you can cross any border without a passport. You can pray for those out in the field. You can pray for those in the ministry. And you will be doing a great work as the gospel gets out through those people. Eight-ninths of an iceberg is underneath the surface of the water. Only one-ninth shows. If you were to drain the ocean, there's much more underneath than on top. I think that's how a ministry in effectiveness works. Eight-ninths of the effectiveness is secret, underwater, in prayer. What you see on the outward is just a small portion of the effectiveness of that ministry. Then he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. If you were to rephrase that for modern times, you'd say, tell everybody I said hello. Give them my warmest regards. You say, yeah, but it says a holy kiss. What's that all about? Well, a holy kiss was a common form of greeting in the ancient times. They would kiss each other on the cheek, either one side or both sides. You've seen Italians do that today, still to this day. It's a form of greeting. But in the early church, the congregations were segregated. In other words, men could sit on one side and women on the other. They were never allowed to sit together. So if you have trouble with our policy of no children in the service, you'd really have trouble with the early church. Even husbands and wives couldn't sit together. 
And after the service, when they would greet each other, they could not greet members of the opposite sex, only the same sex. The women would kiss the women on the cheek, the men the men. You think, that sounds weird. Well, it was, it was a holy kiss. It, it, they didn't mean anything other than, we love you in the name of the Lord. So if you were to take this into a modern setting, if you were in Japan, you might say, give each other a holy bow. Or uh, uh, give each other a holy handshake or a holy hug. Or if in college, a holy high five. The idea is that when you greet a Christian, it's holy. It's more than just, hey, what's happening? It's, God bless you. May the Lord be with you. It means something. It's set apart. When you shake somebody's hand, and I'm not here to give you a course on how to be cordial, but I feel strongly that when you shake somebody's hand, don't hand them a dead fish. I mean, shake their hand, especially another believer. Make it a holy handshake. Greet them like you're happy to greet them as you do it in the name of the Lord. So greet each other with a holy kiss. And then finally, the petition is, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The word I charge you is a rare word. It's a serious word. It's to place somebody under a solemn oath. He's saying, now I am placing you under a solemn divine oath that you read this letter to everyone in the church. It's not to be kept personally just for the elders. It's not to be passed from person to person. It's to be read publicly. It's for all the church. It's the same charge that Paul gave to the uh, church at Colossae. He wrote to the Colossians and he said, take this letter, read it to everybody publicly, and then read it to the church at Laodicea. Take the letter I wrote to Laodicea and read it to the church at Colossae. It's a public letter. It's for everyone. That's important. Because as church history progressed, some believed that the Bible was only for the clergy. In fact, in the early days of the Roman Catholic Church, and it has still continued in many parts of the world today, they said, the Bible's too difficult for you to understand. I'll read it and tell you what it means. That's why the Reformation came about. Martin Luther, who was part of that system, said, no, that's not right. And he stood up in front of the councils in Leipzig, Germany in 1519 at the debates. He said, gentlemen, a simple layman armed with the scripture is to be believed more than a pope or a council without the scripture. He always referred to the scripture. It's for everyone. You can see why a comment like that would cause a lot of fury. He said, it's to, it's to be read. I charge you that it's to be read to all the holy brethren. The word to be read, anagonosko, means to take this and distinguish it clearly or to know it accurately. And it could mean that you expound on it. You use this in your services and expound on the letter that I have written to you. Now, I have taken Paul's injunction very literally. We have spent 15 weeks doing just that, reading this letter to all of you, the holy brethren, so that you can understand it. This book, the Bible, is the focus of every single service we have at this church. We always take the center focus, the center portion of our time, and devote it to the reading and the exposition of the Scripture. Now, we don't do that because it's traditional 
or because it's filling time until closing time. Well, we better extend this out a little bit. They've come, so let's just fill it in with reading. We don't do it to give you positive thoughts to get you through the week. We do it because it's the Word of God which can change lives. And it will always be the focus of this church as long as I'm the pastor here. We read it every day. This week, on Wednesday, I was up in Colorado Springs and I was able to give a devotional for the staff of Focus on the Family. I was introduced by one of the senior vice presidents of Focus on the Family, a neat brother who used to come to this fellowship. And as he introduced me, he said, now the unique thing about Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque is they go through all of the Bible, verse by verse, book by book. And as I thought, I thought, you know, tragic but true, it is unique but it shouldn't be unique. It should be the mainstay of every single church, taking them through all of the Scripture. I charge you, brethren, that you read, know it accurately, pick it apart, this word to all the holy brethren. Years ago, a letter was sent to the British Weekly, a newspaper in uh, London, by a man who said, Dear Sir, I notice that ministers seem to set a great deal of importance on their sermons and spend a great deal of time in preparing them. Well, I've been attending services quite regularly for the past 30 years, and during that time, if I estimate correctly, I have listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. But to my consternation, I discover I cannot remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be spent more profitably on something else. Sincerely, and he signed the letter. Now. Over the next few weeks, a furor of letters poured forth into this newspaper discussing the pros and cons of sermons, and it created quite a, a, a ruckus. The debate was ended when this letter came in and was published. My dear sirs, I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals. Mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly I've discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet I have received nourishment from every one of them. And I have the distinct impression that without them I would have starved to death long ago. Sincerely. And he signed it. Great way to look at it. I didn't, didn't remember all that. Hey, you know what? The more you're exposed to it, the more it's given to you line upon line, precept upon precept, It'll stick. It'll clean you out. And that's part of the sanctification process. Now we close this epistle with verse 28 where we have the pronouncement of a faithful future. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Do you notice that Paul exits the epistle the same way he enters it through the doorway of grace? He started out the same way. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, he didn't just say this because, well, that's the apostolic thing to do. It sounds really important if you say, grace be unto you. No, it's a style of life. Grace is the alpha and the omega of Paul's letters. It's like bookends. It sandwiches everything between grace. It's how we begin the Christian life. It's how we continue the Christian life. And only by God's grace will we end up victorious and make it the other end, carried through all the way. But... You know this, though God's grace is extended to everyone, not everyone experiences it. 
Some don't understand God's unmerited favor. They live under the umbrella of legalism, guilt, instead of God's grace. Some people still see God as an Ebenezer Scrooge. There he is, folding his big arms across his heavenly robe, looking down, ready to get us. I spoke to a young man about a month back who said, Skip, I've heard you here on Sunday morning at the church, but I also heard you at a conference. And when I heard you at this conference, you sounded a little more edgy, cutting edge, you know, really kind of mm, sharp, punchy. And, and I noticed that when you preach to your own church, you, you kind of soft pedal the truth. And he said, I like sermons on hell. <laughs> well, you know, hell is a reality. But I have found that people respond more to a pull than to a push. It's the kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. Now, some people love to be put under guilt because that's the only way they're motivated. But proper motivation comes from understanding the grace of God. God says, come, not you wretch, go, but come. He pulls. I received an awesome letter two weeks ago from a local pastor. I won't mention who he is, what church he's from, but he says, Skip, this is a letter of repentance. I have preached against you publicly from my pulpit for years thinking that anybody who has a large church must be a compromiser. He says, I have come recently to understand the grace of God in my life. And he said, the thing that did it is I've listened to not only your radio broadcasts locally on the radio, but I have met so many people from your church who I believe to be true examples of Christian maturity and love and grace. And they've impressed me. And I'm now understanding the grace of God. It was an awesome letter. I want to focus on one thing as we close. Verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's what God wants to give you. Peace. God's not out to get you. He's out to love you. God said to Jeremiah, to his people, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. God's out to love you. God's out to show you his peace. But for some of you, there is still a barrier between you and God. You'll never experience the peace of God until you experience peace with God. And the sin issue must be dealt with. And as you say, Lord, I know what you've known all along. I'm a sinner. The house is condemned. I can't fix it up myself. I give you my life. When you realize that man is broken and God's grace is the glue that puts you back together, that's the start. He'll give you peace and it will be unending.